Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Beryl Davis, the Managing Director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office, and Tim Persons, the Chief Scientist and a Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics Team, also at GAO. Beryl, Tim, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. We're happy to be thanks, here. Jason. Today we're talking about a new initiative or, or a new report from JFMIP. If you're not familiar with the JFMIP, it's a Joint Financial Management Improvement Program. It's been one of those organizations that I think has been around probably for 20, 30 years or more. And you all took on a, a, an initiative uh, around payment integrity. And this has been a hot topic, really not just over the last few years, but really got a, a, a brighter light shined on it with the pandemic and, and all the challenges with improper payments. So, so maybe Beryl, maybe start us off. What is the Payment Integrity Initiative and, and why did JFMIP take it on? This started about two and a half years ago. Uh, we had several folks from GEO and OMB get together and they sat down and said, well, how can we move the needle in reducing improper payments? And it was actually right before the pandemic took place. And um, so this has been in the works a, a, a little bit of time. But to put this in perspective, let me just say this. In fiscal year 2021, the agencies reported government-wide improper payment estimates for, for that year of about $281 billion. So that was that was actually up $75 billion from the previous year. And uh, these estimates include uh, about 86 programs and in and, and 16 different agencies. And, and in fact, if you go back to 2003, when most agencies started reporting estimates, total uh, cumulative total has been about $2.2 So we knew it was significant, but we also know, based on our experience, that this number is actually understated. For example, there were a number of pandemic programs um, where they did not report estimates of improper payments, unemployment insurance, SBA's Paycheck Protection Program, uh, some of those items, those agency programs were not reporting proper payments. So, so anyway, the topic came up in this meeting about whether we could use the JFMIP to collaborate, um, have the JFMIP principals collaborate uh, amongst themselves to, to come up with a strategy for reducing improper payments. And, and um, for those who may not be aware of the, the principles, the principles are GAO, OMB, Treasury, and OPM. Those are the principles of the JFMIP. There are two kinds of, I, I guess I could use that terminology, improper payments. Um, and I mean, if you want to put two categories out there, one has to do with eligibility, which is determining whether an applicant is it meets a program's eligibility criteria. And then the other one is identity, uh, which is, of course, determining if a person is, is the real person, is the person that they say they are. And when we got together, we thought a lot of work had been done in the area of eligibility, but we really needed to make some progress in this um, area of identity verification. So that's what we started. The project um, actually got kicked off, I think, in October 2020. We started with a literature review, doing some research, and then moved into pulling in some um, representatives from various segments of the industry, so to speak, um, that had expertise in this area. We we included uh, in our expert panel people from federal agencies, academia, um, advocacy groups, et cetera. So that's how we got started, and we thought it was an important initiative. And I'm just going to turn maybe turn it over to Tim at this point to add anything. We really are talking about when this report was put together and you know, GAO, we were pleased, of course, to partner in this problem-solving kind of framework, uh, GAO, with Treasury, OMB, and Office of Personnel Management, uh, really to look at this. Because when you, when you uh, do the estimated uh, improper payments, the magnitude of the problem since 2003 to fiscal year 2021, you're talking about a $2.2 trillion problem. So 
Uh, identity verification is only one part of that, and, and improper payments uh, have a whole spectrum of, of challenges, but it's it's a big deal, and we think that especially as uh, the government shifts more to increasingly to these services models, and part of the services includes the payment of benefit, especially to socioeconomically vulnerable populations and things as well, which a lot of these programs are targeted uh, to help fix. It really is a big deal uh, when you when you look across this problem over that space, because that really amounts to, in that time frame, about $7,000 per U.S. citizen over almost two decades. So anyway, it's a big thing. We're uh, thankful for the JFMIP framework to help deal with this. And uh, as part of our activities in our um, innovation lab at GAO, led by our chief data scientist, Taka Ariga, we've been able to uh, start to compute or use data analytics to start to explore the balance of this problem. But again, we're just getting our, uh, our feet wet on this, starting with a simulation tool that we put together. Uh, to help um, describe this problem. And, and Tim, if I could just have one other thing, because I think it's relevant, and that is that this is the front end control. When you look at identity verification, there are really two types of controls. One are front end controls before the money goes out the door, and then there's our back end controls where you're doing recovery audits. And having a front end control to prevent pay and chase um, is really most beneficial. So that's one of the benefits of, of using this uh, tactic uh, to identify um, identity verification issues, misrepresentation uh, to prevent um, improper payments. Now, I know over the years, the pay and chase and the understanding of improper payments has really progressed across the government. And we're talking about almost 20 years ago when, when agencies really started to track it in, in 2003. There's been steps to improve identity. Is that what the panel found, that generally speaking, agencies have taken small steps, but with the push towards digital services, the pandemic exacerbated really, hey, I can't go into the office to give you my passport or my driver's license. I got to do everything online. Is that what the pandemic kind of showed, the exacerbation of this challenge and, and more needs to be done more quickly? Yes, Jason, that, I think that's spot on. That's a well, well said comment. Yeah, when, you're, when you take out or extract the, the, the requirement on the front end, like Barry is talking about, to, to actually physically show up when we're being advised to stay at home and things, then it really did put a, a big bright spotlight on this digital identity and, and so that's where I think we've had some challenges, of course, of improper payments with the, the stimulus uh, spending through the pandemic. But also, uh, I think we've been we are uh, learning a lot, collecting a lot of data. And I'm optimistic that uh, taking sort of a data analysis approach and things, we can highlight this and, and, and sort of build that risk managed future for these programs to reduce the payments, not do the pay and chase, uh, but to um, get the benefits, who they need to get, the services, and so on, in a timely manner, but uh, while reducing fraud and, and waste and so on. So, Barry, over to you. You saw this in the unemployment insurance programs where they flipped to self-certification of employment and rather than having the employer do that certification. And there was a lot of fraud and uh, improper payments that were identified in that program um, during the, the pandemic when, when some of those new programs were created in unemployment insurance. So what did the panel come up with this when you look through the white paper and we're going to link to your white paper and the simulation tool on federalnewsnetwork.com. But let's start with the report. What were some of the findings? What emerged from the discussions? Tim, go ahead and take that one. I think one of the key things the report found and what's expressed in, in the tool 
are uh, really considerations for uh, program managers to help manage risk, right? So there really are six considerations there. Each of them is worth a, a good amount of, of airtime. I won't do that, but the, it really starts with having to, the ability to identify your risk. And risk is not the same everywhere. It has to be contextualized. It has to be uh, put in the face of the mission of the given or the, the intent of, the, of the design of the program. So you have to identify risk. And really risk is just the probability of something occurring times the consequence. So obviously we're feeling the consequence in payments that are improper, again, trillions of dollars over decades. Uh, but we need to figure out how we both, again, have our cake and eat it too, as it were, by delivering the services while minimizing those. Then you need to analyze those risks, like what, what things are more likely than not uh, program offices don't have infinite budgets to apply to to solve these problems. Uh, you could, for example, have a, a very low rate of improper payments, but you'd also have a very low services score of uh, people who need to get the benefit because the the bar has been raised so high, the benefits aren't getting there. So we have to we have to deal with that, and that's part of our third consideration on establishing risk tolerances: what you're willing to accept. Uh, then there's the control strategy and. You can have a one-size-fits-all approach, which uh, our experts and the reports, we are not advising that in general. So you can now use more of the data analytics, the, t the technology, the tools to be more transaction-based. And so that's, uh, I think, a powerful thing. And then lastly, or, or the last two steps are really just um, applying design and implementation on the control strategy. As Barry said, it's up front, so we need to figure out what to do there. We have to use design thinking to, to get what we want. Lastly, uh, not to be left out, but it really is important in this newer world of data analytics to share the data and to respond to risks. How quickly are we able to do that, to mitigate, to update, and improve? We won't be perfect in, in implementing something the first time, but uh, learning, having a learning and agile environment to, to update things, I think, is going to be, again, a, a good future, a bright future for JFMIP partners and really the, the CFO community uh, across the federal government. Barry? I'm glad you brought up that that uh, point about the uh, the level of authentication, if I can call it that. It, it, when you might have might have strong authentication level, you might prevent improper payments, but but also, you know, there are are ramifications of doing that. For example, you know, there are privacy concerns because you might be providing too much data, or you know, there might be populations of of, of people that you know, are not able to access or, or provide information through, um, you know, a high level of insurance um, type of concept that would prevent improper payments. So it, it's a trade-off, you know, it, the higher level of, of, of authentication could actually result in, in payments not being made uh, to people that are deserving those payments. And then, you know, of course, the other side is if it's a low level of authentication, then you might have a lot of payments being made to people that um, are not entitled to receive those payments. But the other two things I'll quickly mention, in addition to what Tim said, is that there, there's a, a good section of the report that talks about data sharing. And, and this is important because, you know, this, this is really a, a government-wide issue. It's not just within the federal government, but in state and local government as well. And um, to the extent that, you know, data sharing is allowed by law and it's done in, in maybe a safe and secure manner, it can really be beneficial to, to program offices. 
So we looked at um, some suggestions, or I, we, we don't call this guidance, it's not guidance, but you know, we had this expert panel that came together, and they had some areas that they thought should be promoted or discussed through this vehicle, the, the white paper. And, and they looked at um, you know, program offices and what they can do. And, and as Tim was focusing on you know, the, six, uh, the six criteria there and those program offices, we think that, that agencies can can pick this document up and look at it and maybe use it to um, you know reassess their their current uh, processes or procedures or, or possibly you know to to develop new ones. But the data sharing is important. Uh, you know, in addition to program off awareness of the issue, data sharing, and then the last thing I'll just mention, which we really haven't talked about too much, has to do with a government-wide consideration. Looking at this more holistically and looking at possibly a, a federated model. I don't know, Tim, if you wanted to, to get into that. Um, there are three different types of, of models that you can use um, government-wide. Um, one is a centralized model, a decentralized model, and then a federated model. Um, you know, Tim, did you want to share information maybe about the federated model, which appeared to be the, the model of choice for the experts on our panel? We did hear from our experts in this particular activity that the federated framework allows you to have you know, the, the recipient, the public choice, to pick a, a, from a menu of a credential, a, a, a number of credential service providers. So uh, it, it, it sort of, uh, I think, finds a middle ground between the one size fits all, the centralized that Barry mentioned, which I don't think anybody wants that. That, that doesn't necessarily fit the risk profiles of all the programs or the way they operate or what they need to do. On the other extreme, you have a cast of thousands that you have. Everyone had their own decentralized, you know, framework for just the program office. I think having uh, uh, some number of public choice uh, things among a credential service is what we were hearing. And then that allows, like to Barry's point about um, government-wide, you can establish in the federated framework uh, minimum standards by the program risk level. Not, again, all programs have the same risk and not all of them have the same level of risk. So uh, the federated model allows you to adapt to that. It also allows the applicants to choose from uh, these qualified. You have a menu, so you pick one that, that works best for you. Think, for example, of we have people in America that are unbanked. So uh, having to require a uh, bank account may not be the best idea to do that, but they might have uh, some kind of form of ID or some kind of digital footprint that allows them to qualify short of having a bank account. Uh, so that's the kind of thing, allowing applicants to do that, giving them a menu. And then uh, the other thing that we heard was establishing a central management entity to oversee and coordinate. So it is a coordination function. We at GAO know we write a lot about coordination. We know it's, it's easy to say, but harder to do. But I think this is the, the way that gives flexibility to the programs as well as to the recipients uh, to be able to do that. Tim, Barry, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guests today are Barry Davis, the Managing Director of the Financial Management and Insurance Team at the Government Accountability Office, and Tim Persons, the Chief Scientist and the Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics Team, also at GAO. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, we're talking with two members of the Government Accountability Office about the Joint Financial Management Improvement Program, or JFMIP, recent report and simulation tool to improve payment integrity across different programs in the government. My guests are Beryl Davis, the Managing Director of the Financial Management Insurance Team at the GAO, 
and Tim Persons, the chief scientist and a managing director of the science, technology assessment, and analytics team also at GAO. I'm glad you brought up this idea of both risk levels, but also the idea that people are different. Not everyone can show up at a place or not everyone has a passport or driver's license or the like, or a bank account, as you said. One of the things that that I think always comes up when folks like JFMIP or, or GAO puts out the reports, are they doable? You know, is this at a high level? Is this something where, yeah, if I had all the time in the world and I had all the money in the world, I could do these things? Or did the group really try to focus on things that can be done in a make make a big difference in a short amount of time and then maybe there's some longer term goals as well built in maybe barry do you want to start with that one is it doable or, or not doable well of course you know going back to the point about program managers assessing risk they're going to have to be having to make decisions there but but i'm going to interject here the concept of a a pilot program because is sometimes you don't implement um, or test a control uh, you know with an entire population of disbursements so what you might want to do is is you know pick out a segment of the population and do your test that way and we really think that agencies you know trying to implement um, those those pilot programs um, might really find um, which are most successful, which aren't, what levels of, uh, of authority, um, you know, work, what don't work, what are the costs, you know, what are the costs versus the benefits? And and so that's probably what I would point out. So I don't know if Tim wants to add to that. Yeah, I think that it is, uh, it's time to, you know, we've collected a lot of data. We uh, obviously with these stimulus uh, monies that have been put out in recent years, we have a lot of, of, of things that we could go back and assess patterns. And try and again do that risk assessment through the through the programmatic lens of uh, of whoever's uh, giving the benefit. And I think uh, as Barry's saying, pilot, you just need to be able to start doing right. We we know this has been a big problem. Even when we talk about improper payments, we really are talking about estimates of improper payments. And one of the things we are doing in our uh, innovation lab in partnership with Barry and her team is just and, and our fraud uh, team as well is uh, trying to just explore the bounds of uh, how we compute that. So um, being able to see some things uh, piloted, as Barry was talking about, uh, in the various agencies, departments, and programs where their risk and their their needs uh, can vary uh, based on their data is going to be, I think, a powerful outcome. And then uh, really that sharing piece is critical because we we do need to say, here's what worked and here's what didn't work. Uh, and I think there's going to be a potential significant taxpayer savings uh, if we can do that. And that's what that's really after this report, we're pivoting into uh, the community that is into some of these smaller scale pilots to try and uh, explore the bounds uh, of the challenge, which is really what the tool was intended to do, to simulate, to let you have kind of think of it as knobs of a policy and set risk tolerances, set various variables, set budgeting. Uh, because it all ties together, right? And um, so I think uh, that's what you're going to see in the near future. Tim, I'm glad you brought up this idea of sharing because one of the things we've seen from reports from GAO and from the Inspector General community is, for instance, and we'll pick on the Social Security Administration as an example, they have a master death file, right? Someone passes away, it gets reported, but sometimes they can't share that with, let's say, the IRS, and then they have challenges of kind of sharing that data. My, my example may not be perfect. Maybe they've solved that one problem. But there are instances where agency X can't get data from agency Y unless if they have a specific agreement. And that makes delays. And that also increases the risk of improper payments. 
did you all also talk about those issues that maybe Congress needs to solve or address because SSA and IRS, they're on the same team, but sometimes because of the way laws are written or policies are written, they're, they're bumping up against bigger obstacles. Yes. I mean, the, the laws sometimes prevent the sharing of data, and that is a concern. Uh, you know, the laws are written for a specified purpose. But, um, you know, when we look now at the importance and the value of data sharing, we're starting to question whether, you know, some of those laws could be changed. And in fact, um, GEO has gone on record for, um, in, in particular, you know, the, the, the information that SSA has, has put to, has, has developed or created or, or obtained, and the value of sharing that with the Do Not Pay initiative. So, yeah, data sharing, you know, is important, and, and sometimes the laws prevent um, that from happening. Yeah, I, I agree, Barry. And I think that uh, the sharing, uh, Jason, you said, again, like I mentioned before, we've written a number of great reports on the need for data sharing, and yet we also do work on the need for, let's say, for example, preservation of privacy. We operate in, in, a, in a framework of constitutional civil liberties, so how much the government collects and shares, disseminates, aggregates, and so on is, is highly sensitive. And like you put your finger on a great example, Jason, it, it, it takes a while to do those things. Uh, we do need to have from a policy perspective, starting with what I think is, is the best question to start with is how might we do this, right? Not may we do this, that, that's a permission question. Can we do this or an ability question? Those things do matter. But in this conversation, it says, well, how do we solve this thing? Because we do need, for example, like you said, Jason, to do things like mat match the uh, Social Security DF master file with IRS so that IRS can do its job of proper revenue collection and, and you know, that the taxpayers, the honest taxpayers are, are protected and uh, the dishonest ones, uh, you have disincentives there in place to, to deal with that. Another example uh, that I think comes up is, you know, we, we do work, for example, on mitigation of opioids and things like that. And you can you can find uh, challenges or, or fraud or doctor shopping or things in data from uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, right? But that's medical data that, that risks PII. You know, you would want to have some mechanism that if you could see that kind of challenge in this, you know, opioid abuse or, or, or writing scripts and so on, that that would be referred to law enforcement officers. So. Uh, those sort of things are what the government is now dealing with in this particular case for payment integrity. And uh, I think, again, the using a data-centric approach, using design thinking, coming up with a federated model, managing risk and so on, as the report talks about, uh, is going to help us solve that. But that, that data sharing is critical. I could talk about data sharing all day, but I also want to talk about the simulation tool because I think that's also a, a pretty different approach because it's not just you put out a white paper and said, good luck, people, read the white paper. You also provide them with the tool. Maybe start with what is the tool a little bit? How does it work? And, and how can folks use it? it? It is exciting to have something that you can, you can build scenarios for your program on, explore the bounds of things and express the interconnectedness of the various issues. Again, we can be silly for a moment. You can imagine a program that has zero uh, improper payments, but you don't pay anybody, right? Then that's obviously bad. So we need to figure out how we pay and reduce risk. And again, I, given an upfront control that you can select and, and, and say things, you can be able to maximize the proper payments, minimize the improper, and then look at your costs on that. Uh, look at the, uh, I think, again, I mentioned services earlier. As we think about government services, we need to think about, well, how's the recipient feel about that? Are they 
feeling like their government is serving them in an efficient and effective manner. And this is where you also have the issue of you could make it where it's perfect for the program, but the recipient is not happy at all because of all the extra friction or work or things that they have to do, or maybe they can't do to be able to do that. So the tool shows you that and allows each of the program officers in their respective agency department and so on with their respective risk, with their particular mission, be able to, what I, what I think is set knobs on a, you know, various knobs that they tweak to see what might be advisable in a given, in their particular circumstance. It's not going to, it's not designed to tell them the exact answer, but it is a, a way that they could customize and tailor things. And because not everybody's risk level is the same, risk, risk tolerance is the same, or nature of risk is the same. And so that's where we wanted to express that in this tool. It is a web-based tool. It is available in the links that uh, thanks, Jason, for providing and support, and you can see the, the living expression of the report that you can interact with from a program or government or CFO kind of perspective. The tool uses hypothetical data, and the intent is, you know, to explore the benefits and the trade-offs of, of incorporating these identity verification controls. But um, the point should be made that, you know, you want to look at not just the proportion of improper payments made, but the proportion of proper proportion of proper payments made. Because, you know, as Tim was was really stating, that, you know, there there's a there's a, a loss to preventing proper payments from being made. I mean, there's there's this, could be a significant loss to the population of those that are entitled to receive them. So this tool is, it's really, um, I'm going to say it's really cool. I don't know if that's appropriate for this this uh, type of discussion, but um, it is, as, as Tim was saying, out on the CFO Council website, and we really are, are encouraging people to take a look at it. And generally speaking, is this something that the JFMIP developed? Did you buy it off the shelf? Was it some sort of what they call, you know, GOTS government off the shelf? It wasn't cuts, but it, it, it's, I think, becoming got. Uh, this, this particular tool came out of uh, GAO's Innovation Lab, but it was, it was working in partnership with, so uh, getting the, you know, synthetic data, as uh, Barry had pointed out, it's not real data per se, but it's plausible. It, it approximates what real would, would behave like, and that allowed our data scientists and then software and web developers to put the tool together and deploy it in a way that, again, allows you to you know, dial the knobs and, and so on to do that. So really exciting. Uh, the, the Innovation Lab is a new capability at GAO. Uh, it's all based upon uh, you know, what we're doing in uh, data science, uh, advanced analytics, and, and emerging technologies, and starting again with, um, as I mentioned before, that how might we do something. And we have a great relationship partnership inside GAO with Barry's team on uh, tackling some of these, you know, enormous financial uh, accountability challenges. And, and yes, Barry, by the way, I'll join. It is a cool tool. I like, I'll use the phrase cool. Uh, thanks for saying that. Um, we definitely think that, but uh, uh, we think that uh, it's, it's, it's been well-received and is to be quite valuable to those who live and work and feel the, the slings and arrows of this, this kind of challenge. And again, we'll link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com as well, make it easy for people to find. And I appreciate the fact that you all uh, thought of not just put out a report, but also gave folks a way to start putting that report into action. Tim, Barry, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guests today are Barry Davis, the Managing Director of the Financial Management and Insurance Team at the Government Accountability Office. And Tim Persons, the Chief Scientist and a Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics Team, also at GAO. 
I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, we're talking with two members of the Government Accountability Office about the Joint Financial Management Improvement Program, or JFMIP, recent report and simulation tool to improve payment integrity across different programs in the government. My guests are Beryl Davis, the Managing Director of the Financial Management and Insurance Team at the GAO, and Tim Persons, the Chief Scientist and a Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics Team, also at GAO. In the overall scheme of things, did JFMIP or has GAO or whomever else looked at just how big of a problem are fake identities to obtain federal payments? We know improper payments are bad, and they've risen quite a bit, but do we know that subsection of improper payments at all? Do we have any data or any any feeling about the, any details? Anecdotally, we have a lot of information, but I don't think we have empirical data. And that's, you know, one of the things that we were looking at through this project is to do a, you know, a pilot phase and, and see if we can get more information that could be extrapolated across various programs and give us more substantive information that we could use. So, you know, the anecdotal is, you know, the problems that the unemployment insurance program experienced during the pandemic. There are a lot of instances where, where that was very evident, but I'm not uh, aware of too much empirical data, but I'll turn it over to Tim, see if he has thoughts. You're spot on, Barry. I don't, we haven't been able, Jason, to compute this. We want to. uh, And I think, again, with a a data-centric approach, collecting the right things, thinking algorithmically, if you will, about this challenge uh, moving forward is I think we're going to start to be able to put the bounds around not only this, but just uh, improper payments overall in its various segments or components. But yeah, right now, I'm not aware of any anything that says this is the amount of it. We know it's a problem. We know it's a, quote, big problem. We just don't know how much yet. Tim, you brought up the GAO Innovation Lab, something we've talked to, uh, quite a bit about uh, in, the, in the past. Just wondering, are they taking on any other efforts around identity verification or looking at this problem anyway? Are they doing any other work based on this JFMIP effort? The lab is working in this space and nothing that we're piloting necessarily out of this report yet. We could do that, but we're exploring that identity verification. A lot of this, I think, is allowing sister institutions, especially you know on the executive branch side where there, there's they have uh, a lot of agencies, departments, programs spending and doing this. We think that there might be some under JFMI future partnerships to continue to compute in this area, but data has to be collected. We just are building kind of the, uh, the means of production, as it were, in the digital domain to be able to do some of these more advanced pilots and things like that based upon questions that and, and data that may in the future be available to us. So yes, in general, working on things, but nothing uh, in a, in a big uh, specific way right now uh, following on this report. Uh, actually, Barry, I was just asking that question, is GAO doing any other work, any other reports? Has, has Have you guys gotten any requests from uh, lawmakers to do any more insights or, or reports on improper payments, aside from maybe uh, the annual report that you do or, or, or anything like that? I don't know if we have anything specific to identity verification. I'm not aware at this point. I mean, we have definitely an interest on the part of Congress in doing more work in in the realm of improper payments, um, which, you know, could include identity verification, but I'm not 
I don't know the answer to that question. I'm certainly not in the work that I've been doing um, relative to identity verification. Or, or just even improper payments and, more generally. Yeah, Jason, I'll just say Barry and my boss, the Comptroller General, uh, his top thing has been, and I remember when we founded the lab, he, he was saying, look, number one challenge you need to be working on is improper. And so we've been, again, strategically unpacking that. We've been in the in a payment integrity uh, neighborhood, as it were, for a little while, but we're also just getting uh, started on trying to compute things like fraud. Uh, again, we have a sister team that deals in fraud a lot, but we're just sort of, my southern cousin would say, we're fixing to get ready on how we try and put, just like we're trying to compute the bounds, we don't know yet, but we'd like to be able to compute the bounds of uh, the size of the magnitude of the payment integrity piece. We also are, are uh, making steps toward doing this at the fraud space. And then, of course, in Barry's team, they're looking at the improper payments overall. And anything that we can come up with uh, together, I think that uh, that's something that we you might see emerge out of uh, GAO, if not GFMIP as a whole in the future. I think what's important about a report like this and the simulation tool is that people know it exists. So. The obvious question is beyond talking to folks like myself, which I appreciate, how else does the GFMIP and the CFO Council plan to get the word out that this is here, that you can use it, that you can start doing some of those pilots that Barry and Tim, you, you both talked about? What's the socialization, institutionalization plan for this effort? It's it's still a new report, a new simulation tool for, for the general public to see. In addition, of course, to the posting on the website, we've shared this report in a number of the forums. And to be specific, there was the presentation to the CFO council meeting. We've also had a presentation at a conference of the, the Council of Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. In addition, the JFMIP is going to be having a conference uh, later this year, later this calendar year. And um, they're going to be present, we'll be presenting, you know, the, in that conference, we'll be presenting information on the report as well as the tool. The last thing I'll mention is, you know, there, there are other agencies like the AGA, Association of Government Accountants. They have an intergovernmental partnership that is aware of this and has interest in it. So, um, you know, we're trying to get the word out. And of course, we appreciate this interview, which is just another means uh, to help us uh, to get uh, people to be aware of this. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Jason, I've always enjoyed being, I do a, a lot of uh, panels and discussions and um, coffee chat kind of things with Barry at, at major events. So we'll continue to do the, you know, if we can, the Barry and Tim show uh, on some of these things, or certainly with our, our partners. Again, it's not just a GAO thing, um, but uh, that's one way. The other thing that we are also doing, it's not as visible in terms of these are not public events per se, but what we are doing is we're inviting our, our clients, staff on, on Capitol Hill who deal with the, these things. You think about like the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, you know, with, with sort of that government-wide remit, uh, what they're looking at uh, on the House side, it would be the House Committee of Oversight Reform. Having some of those staff come in and see, you know, sort of kick the tires on the policy simulator on the web tool uh, that I know you're posting to this uh, to this chat has been very powerful because they really like that. And I think I'm getting a sense that they want their members to see that because, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Whenever you want to do something policy-wise, it's going to come at some kind of cost or some kind of thing. And like Barry said, it's, it's really a, a multi-part optimization, you know, using sort of an engineering concept. You want to maximize uh, proper payments. You want to minimize improper. You don't want to have uh, each transaction cost a fortune or be so hard to get that you can't you can't get it to the recipients and so on. And really is is the one way to show everything that you tie together 
uh, staff who have seen this are, are, I think, very excited about it. Uh, we're excited about it. We think that as we show more uh, of the Hill about this, we think there's some things that they could, they could look at, and this could support their legislative activities to work in this space. But before I let you go, Barry, maybe just a little bit about why this effort was so important and what's the big takeaway, both from your perspective and JFMIP's perspective, but also what should agencies and, and others keep in mind about this white paper, the stimulation tool, and the overall broader effort around improper payments? Just to kind of summarize to what the report was was um, stating and and what we wanted to share um, is that there's efforts at the program level to reduce improper payments. That's extremely important. There's also a need uh, related to that to to um, sharing data. Uh, I'll make that as an important point. And then um, looking at things through what I'll say is the government-wide lens, and in particular, maybe looking at a, a federated model for um, infrastructure related to identity verification. But the point, the main takeaway, in my opinion, uh, is that this particular project, the JFMAP project, uh, demonstrates the, the value, in my mind, of cross-agency collaboration to try to solve some of our bigger problems in government. That interagency effort, the cross-agency effort is so important. I think people sometimes lose sight of that. But we didn't, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, JFMIP didn't. So let me thank my guests. Uh, Beryl Davis is the Managing Director of the Financial Management and Insurance Team at the Government Accountability Office. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. And Tim Persons is the Chief Scientist and a Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics Team, also at GAO. Tim, always a pleasure as well. Thanks very much, uh, Jason. It's my pleasure. We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll switch gears and talk about how HUD is managing its risks. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment, my guest is Elliot Johnson, Jr., a senior management analyst for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. You have a lot of work being done around HUD or on uh, fraud risk assessments. Uh, you mentioned a tool that you guys had from the 90s that you just updated. Can you just tell me what that update looks like? How is it better? How is it more efficient, effective, all, those, all the good words that we use around uh, tools? The deputy CFO at the time looked at the type of money that HUD would get, uh, supplemental funding they were receiving in, in the billions. As you can imagine, with this stuff that's going on in Puerto Rico, the hurricane hits, you have to respond quickly. You get this funding coming. You want to take a look at what's the impact of the risk associated with this funding when you're not upstaffing to, to deal with it. So he came about with the idea of creating something called a, our front-end risk assessment policy, which the tool is also known as the FIRA tool. And it was phenomenal from the standpoint of the oversight community because it uh, looked at the risk associated with the program supplemental funding and the stresses put on a particular program area, but it was cumbersome as heck for the program folks. Because when you work on a program, your process is trying to make sure you get safe, decent, affordable housing for folks. So, and you're doing something to assess the risk and you're saying, this is taking energy and time away from me to do what I really need to do as opposed to doing this something that oftentimes would end up with a 300-page doorstop. Uh, so about 2018 time frame. A decision was made that let's how can we revise and update this policy so that it, so that it is it is as useful, easy and and less cumbersome on the program areas to complete, in in a time frame that's reasonable so that the it's actually completed before we start drawing down the funds, and so through the revision we worked very closely with 
getting a significant input uh, from from the IG, from our IG by bouncing it back off it. We would send it to them to look at it once we work on that aspect of it. It's uh, heavy in the green book, internal control guidance. It has principles from the ERM principles in it. It has COSO in it. It has ISO. And you took something that took oftentimes three to six months to complete and re-engineered it so that a program area could really accomplish the, that work in six weeks. And so if you think about the time that it takes when you get the supplemental funding that comes into an, an, an our agency, the first thing that, that, that happens once it gets passed is that the folk, pro, folks in the program area have to deal with their attorneys to go through a process to figure out how they get, what type of language needs to be in the NOFA to, to start addressing to get the funds out the door. So in, the, in about the time it takes to do that, um, uh, it takes about uh, you could complete a front-end risk assessment so that it actually you're actually able to assess what your risk may be you also, as well as the places where you, and not just from the standpoint of fraud risk, but if you need more staff, if you, it, uh, as, as I said, it has a 21 different uh, categories from compliance to uh, systems to reputational. And so that, since 2019, we've done roughly 20 of them. Our oversight community bought into it on the front of it, and it's been an incredible uh, because we've got nothing but outstanding feedback from GAO and our IG off of the, off the assessments. So this is not necessarily a technology tool. This is like a, a tool in the sense of a process tool to improve the speed, the efficiency of the process to do that front-end risk assessment or front-end fraud risk assessment. What it is is we have a policy that's published as an internal HUD policy. And the tool aspect of it is uh, reduced it down through six or seven attachments from A to, to F. Uh, the, the meat of it would be where it allows you to look through each one of the risk categories, uh, assess whether they're high, medium, or low, and once you complete that throughout all of the categories, you can put an appropriate risk response to control, uh, to address any of the risks, uh, the result is medium and high. And so what it really ends up being is like an itinerary for how you're going to propose to spend the money down and ensure that you get it safely through to the end of the funding. The absolute difference between the prior version and this one is that folks are actually using it after they complete it. They refer to it like a, uh, they refer back and forth, forth to it like the map when they're driving across the country. And where it was before, no one would ever take the time to look through 300 pages or something to try to find where they saw the risk. The other, and the bigger thing is, is is you're providing confidence to the, the auditors in the event that they come in and see something and if they go back and that, uh, if an event occurs, they can see that you've cap uh, captured it, you have a way that you propose to address it, and you, you're never going to catch every, eliminate every single risk across the, the board, but it, it's something that is viable and you can uh, uh, make cor course corrections as you're moving through a process. Speaking of assessments, you also mentioned some pilots that's going on on a fraud risk assessment uh, tool. Yeah. You said that you're going to look at eventually all 16 programs and then also uh, from a 50,000-foot view. Can you just talk a little bit about what those pilots are? Well, we have a fraud risk assessment uh, tool that was created about 2020 and a process that we are uh, we used, uh, did an assessment of our of, uh, the uh, folks in yeah in contracts to assess them and try to identify some weaknesses uh, in areas where they could do some improvement across to see what vulnerabilities they had. That went really well. That's all the time we have for today. Let me thank my guest. Elliot Johnson Jr. is a senior management analyst at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. 
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.